Mac Power Users, episode 575, iOS Parody with John Syracuse. Hello, this is David Sparks, joined by my fellow co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? I am doing so well. We're looking forward to talking to a guest we haven't had on the show since you've joined. Welcome to the show, John Syracuse. I'm so excited to be back with the with yeah. the new lineup. It's yeah, just changed last week, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You were the first. We said in when Stephen starts, John Syracuse has to be the very first guest we have on the show. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you agreed <laughs> to this honor. Um, but I, I, I have been thinking about you a lot, John, because of all the folks in our little world of Apple Podcasting, I feel like you are one of the biggest authorities on the Macintosh computer that we all love. And the Mac has gone through a bit of a renaissance in the last year. And I, one of the things we're going to talk about today is I want to pick your brain a little bit on your thoughts on all that. It's kind of like that, uh, that short from, uh, the animatrix, uh, which is a series of, uh, animated, um, animated shorts based in the matrix universe. And it was called the second Renaissance. I feel like we're on at least the second Renaissance of the Mac, aren't we? Yeah, right? like, uh, more like the maybe, third. Yeah, yeah, maybe the third. Yeah, we got the original Macintosh. Then I think we've got. Well, what is the second Renaissance? Uh, I mean, I feel like it has to fade. But the second Renaissance, I would say, maybe is like maybe they all coincided with processor transitions. Um, I know, maybe not. Let's see. PowerPC is the second one. Uh, well, PowerPC is the first one, and then I'm going to say iMac and Steve Jobs' return is the second one, and maybe this is the third. Yeah, we're just going to skip over Intel, I guess. <laughs> that's fine i mean intel i mean it was great but a lot of the really exciting stuff had already happened with jobs coming back yep and i almost feel like there was a renaissance there in like the first couple years because the macintosh started out as a great computer that didn't have enough power and then like it hit its stride two or three years later and really like just delivered the goods like the networking was there the laser printers all that stuff came together I would almost argue there was a bit of a renaissance kind of early. Yeah, you're probably right. The desktop publishing era. Yeah. But either way, we're on another one, and we're definitely going to talk with you about that today. And that's why, frankly, we wanted to make you the first guest since Stephen joined the show. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody listening that hasn't listened for a while, and they're like scratching their head right now? What's what's going on? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> Um, we also, uh, are going to join for the more power users episode today. We're going to have the first meeting of the XDR club, and, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything more about that. You're just going to have to listen. Um, but, but John, we always like to start these interviews with, with talking about gear. Uh, it's been a couple of years since you've been on the show and I know that you have some new Apple gear. What are you driving these days? My gear changes slowly uh, for, you know, I was using the same computer setup with modifications for decades uh, and that yeah. finally changed recently when Apple finally made a computer I wanted to buy, even though they priced it kind of ridiculously. So <laughs> I finally replaced yeah. my 2008 Mac Pro. I replaced it with a 2019 Mac Pro, which is the current Mac Pro, the the new cheese grater with the big weird holes in the front of it and everything. Um and I got with it uh, an Apple monitor that matches the computer that I bought. Unfortunately, that is the Pro Display XDR, which costs a huge amount of money. And yes, I bought the super expensive stand to go with it. That's what I'm using right now. 
and I'm very happy with it. I just try not to think about how much it costs. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just you think about that once and then, you know, and for someone who uses a computer as long as you do, it actually doesn't come out to be that much, right? Over time. Mm, it doesn't actually work out that well. I did that math as a defense, as a preemptive defense. And it's like, well, no, that doesn't really help as much as you might think. And and honestly, yeah. I mean, at this point, like when I bought this, I knew our Macs were around the corner-ish. Like they hadn't been officially announced or anything, but, you know, we've been talking about them for years. So I'm resigned to the fact that I'm not going to be using this computer for 10 years, right? Unless something terrible goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, but you, you and Steven are two of the only... People and I use air quotes. It's like well, I say, almost amateur pro users. Like you're not making feature films and things on your Mac Pros, but you guys are doing heavy load stuff on them. Like I know Stephen runs a lot of the stuff for the network office. I know you're doing some uh, a lot of like uh, virtual. I'm sorry, not virtual. The PC gaming you run. Don't you run Windows on it as well? Yeah, but I mean, this is the least cost-effective way to yeah, <laughs> be I able know. to run I Windows know. games. Like, it's, I mean, <laughs> the best analogy is like, you know, someone who owns a fancy sports car. Yeah. Like, well, do you need to get to work really fast? What do you need that sport? Like, no one ever asks anyone that question. So people understand, you buy a sports car because it's cool and it's fast and it looks nice. And that's why you buy it. And no one thinks like, oh, that person must really need to get to the supermarket very quickly. Otherwise, why would they have purchased that sports car? This is what I have here. It's a ridiculous overpriced sports car of a computer because that's the kind of thing I like. I drive a Honda Accord and I have this computer. That you know, I'm the, I have the same defense to people when they look at all my Apple gear. I'm like, look, a lot of people spend money on a lot dumber things, and uh, I drive my Ford, but I've always got the best iPad and one of the best Apple computers I can get my hands on, and I don't worry about it. Um, I think it's part partly for me. We were talking before we hit the record button today. My first computer was an Atari 400 that didn't really have a keyboard so much as a flat piece of plastic you just smashed and prayed against. I don't know, just growing up being such a computer enthusiast as a kid, as an adult, it's like, you know what? I'm going to find a way to have the best hardware anytime I want it. Yeah, it's, you know. People grew up with different kind of, I mean, sports cars is a great analogy. I grew up with pictures of sports cars on my wall, but uh, when push came to shove and limited resources, if I had to choose between having a fancy computer that I was, you know, obsessing over as a kid versus having a fancy sports car, I apparently pick the computer every single time because, you know, I just keep buying the cheapest car possible that can hold my family and putting tons of money into computers. Well, if you had the wheels, they could, they could ride the Mac Pro to school. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know how they do well in the snow. <laughs> I can tell you they they would not. <laughs> now you you rather famously are not a, a notebook fan. You've as long as I've known you've used desktops, and I've heard you talk about your computer past all all desktops. What did the Mac notebook ever do to you? It's not the Mac notebook so much. Notebooks in general, and I, I there's a couple aspects to it, but it, I feel like the biggest well maybe it's a tie. There's two factors. One is that notebooks are always like worse in terms of performance characteristics and desktops. Like they, you know, they have, they get hotter, they're slower, they have more fan noise, like they're more compromised in that way. So right away you're compromising on a bunch of the performance characteristics that I care about because it has to be small. It has to be battery powered and all that stuff, right? Battery life and small space. Yeah. Yeah. And the second one is ergonomics. Uh, I have always struggled with RSI and the ergonomics of laptop computers are necessarily not great. The The screen is attached to the keyboard and in front of the keyboard is a little trackpad. 
And that whole setup is just terrible for me. Um, you know, like I, I don't like using a trackpad over a mouse. It doesn't, it doesn't feel natural to me. And I find it more aggravating of my RSI than using the mouse, believe it or not. The keyboard being, you know, where it is, I actually have to have the laptop on my lap to use it that way. It doesn't have arrow keys or, you know, home end, page up, page down, all the other things that I'm used to. And then the screen being right attached to the keyboard, that's a terrible place for it. It's not in the right eye line. You have to like hunch over and look down to see it, right? So ergonomically, laptops are a compromise. And if you're just going to hook it up to an external monitor and a keyboard and everything, now you've just got is a very bad desktop. So those two things combined to say, why would I compromise all the things I care about for portability that I don't need? And then just the thought of using a laptop, you know, to do anything sort of fun or relaxing or productive makes me feel just all hunched and cramped and terrible. And I just, I don't like trackpads. I don't like laptop keyboards. I don't like small screens. Like I have the antithesis of a laptop right in front of me now. This screen is huge. It is not where a laptop screen would be. My keyboard is on a keyboard tray. It is an extended keyboard with all the keys on it. I have a mouse. My keyboard and my mouse are, tech, are connected by a wire, so I don't have to deal with Bluetooth wireless stuff. And there's a giant honking tower computer next to it. No, I mean, that all makes sense. And uh, I, I think the laptops, you know, the benefit is obviously for people who are more mobile, but you don't need to be, right? So why bother? I mean, all this said, uh, for my work, the only computer I have an option to have is a laptop. So I do, in fact, have a laptop for work. It's a terrible 2017 15-inch MacBook Pro that's on its second keyboard. Uh, but I don't really have a choice about that. So, you know... The laptop is what I got. I got the biggest laptop they would give me. Uh, and yeah, you know. Do you ever use it as a laptop? I mean, do you ever like sit on the couch and? I do use it as a laptop. In fact, I use it as a laptop a lot of the time during the day. For a while, I was, you know, I would connect my keyboard. I, I still do this. Connect my keyboard and my mouse to it through Bluetooth, right? Because both my keyboard and my mouse are Bluetooth capable. I just have them connected for the wire to my Big Mac. And then I was I was also like screen sharing onto it from on my big on my big desktop Mac screen, so sort of using it in clamshell mode. But my work VPN has really thrown a monkey wrench into that setup. So I do in fact find myself using my laptop as a laptop a lot of the time, and I hate it. But it's just for work. Yeah. Well, any tips? I mean, I, someone like you probably has got a few ways to make it a little better. I mean, if the, to the the best you can turn it into a desktop by essentially running it in clamshell mode, hooking it up into a big monitor and using a real keyboard and a mouse that are positioned ergonomically, that really helps. Of course, when I do that, I'm taking away my Big Mac as well. I, I, what I find myself doing a lot at work uh, on my work computer is like, if I have some large piece of writing I need to do, like I need to send a long email or even if I'm doing some coding stuff or whatever, I will do it on my Big Mac and then just like transfer the file over to my laptop when it's done. Just so I feel like I'm doing the productive work on my big setup and then just bring it over to the sort of the firewall VPN computer and then, you know, checking it in there or pasting it into the email there or whatever. It's it's clunky. I don't particularly like it. Um, and like I said, the VPN really puts a damper on a lot of the cooler setups that you can do because you can have stuff where like they're, you know, you're laptop uh, projects onto your big monitor you can screen share i could i could physically hook up this uh computer to my big monitor like there's all sorts of stuff i could do but in general i don't want to compromise my nice setup from my work setup and i just want to at the end of the work day close the lid of my laptop and have my computer you know my real computer the way i want it to be i'll tell you the thing i cannot unsee is because of covid you know we always see these interviews of movie stars and politicians and people at home 
and they all have their 13 inch laptop on the table and their camera shoots right up their nose. And all they have to do is like stick it on some books or something. And like, come on, man. (laughs) But if they're trying to use it as a laptop, now the keyboard is way too high and they're going to kill themselves trying to use that keyboard and and trackpad when it's uh, two feet off their, you know, desktops are just superior. That's all there is to it. My, my camera is so high. I have to tilt it down to see me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that I've really come to enjoy over the last few years of using a desktop for my work machine is that when I'm not at the computer, the computer can't come with me, right? Like I've got a MacBook Pro for for some work stuff, but it basically just lives in my backpack. But it's nice to be able to, you know, roll away from it or put it to sleep. And it's just going to be there when you come back to it, but it's not interjecting itself into the, you know, the rest of your household. Yeah. And I have I have fond feelings for laptops in the cases where I need them. For example, whenever I go on vacation, I take lots of photos on vacation and I always bring a laptop with me and because that's the only choice. Like I can't bring a desktop with me. And I love being able to come back from a day at the beach with a you know SD card full of pictures and sit down with the computer, the computer being the laptop, because it's my only choice and be able to do all the things I can do, you know, to bring them into photos, to have them upload to iCloud Photo Library, to have full access to all of my historical photos there, to be able to edit them. Like, I appreciate the power of a laptop, but only in scenarios where you need a portable computer. Anytime I don't need a portable computer, like sitting at a desk in my house, I do not want a laptop anywhere near me. Well, I, I have a, an admission here. I So I've been Mr. Fancy Pants, use my iMac and my iPad because I'm fancy for a long time. But this Apple Silicon has changed it. I I bought a 13-inch Apple Silicon laptop. And I find that I really like having like Keyboard Maestro and Apple Script and all this stuff with me when I leave my desk. So I'm starting to become more of a laptop fan than I've been in a long time. I'm pretty sure they're going to make desktop versions of yeah, those computers, I know. just I know. FYI. <laughs> yeah, the, the other half of it is I've been using this for everything. I plug it into a monitor, and I really don't like that. I thought that I would get used to it, and I've been doing it, like, I think six weeks now, and it is not. it's not getting any better. What don't you like about it? Um, I don't like that I have to manually dismount all my external drives every time I want to pick it up. Mm-hmm. I don't like the delay between plugging it in and getting it to work. I don't like that my Bluetooth keyboard still shows up on my my laptop when I take it away from the the desk and you know the track somebody can jiggle the trackpad on my desk while I'm sitting over in the couch and my laptop mouse starts to move. Um, I, I don't like the backup system because I had a very good backup system with a fully twenty four seven plugged in computer, and now my backups are always getting screwed up because the laptop's not plugged in when it's supposed to be. That's just a few things. I, that's probably fodder for another show. But I, I don't think I'm going to be a one computer guy very long. Yeah, you can be as long as that one computer is a desktop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and like Steven said, you get up and you leave it. And then, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a very clean relationship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, now, on the iPhone, you get one every couple of years, right? Are you uh, on the most recent iPhone at this point? Yeah, like for whatever reason, I, I mean, I, I guess it's when back when they had like two year contract stuff. Remember that? Yeah, and I, yeah. I was I was off of smartphones for a long time. Like I had a flip phone for years and years. Like I, I've had an iPod Touch since the very first one, but I didn't buy an iPhone until. Do you remember this, Stephen? When did I get my first iPhone? I think it was a six. 
six uh, yeah yeah maybe somewhere in there yeah i think iphone 6 was my first iphone or something around that area so anyway i held off from the iphone for the longest time but when i got it it, w- it was the oh you know every two year contract blah 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 thing uh and so we still do that uh, my wife and i get uh, new iphones every two years and we alternate so this was my year and i got a 12 pro nice how do you like it it's fine I mean, I, I just need uh, what I want. I don't ask much of my phone. I mean, it's an essential device. It's probably the device I use the most because it's, you know, always with me, even in the house as I go from room to room. I, there's tons of things I prefer to do on my phone, like reading Twitter. Uh, my phone is of all the platforms in my house and all of them can read Twitter with the exact same app and everything is synced between them. But my phone is the one I like the best for that. Uh, and reading Twitter is a lot of what I do. Um, but yeah, as long as the battery life is good and the screen is nice and the size and the weight are okay. Like a, this this generation, I tripped up mostly on trying to find a case that I found satisfactory because Apple's case uh, has the, the lip on the bottom, which is really annoying when you have to swipe up from the bottom on your phone. But I did eventually find a case that was okay. In, in general, I just want my phone to do what it does and not bother me. And this, this fulfills that uh, criteria. Oh, and I'm really enjoying the camera. Like upgrading every two years you see the camera advancements more than most people or more than more than the tech nerds in our circle who buy phone every single year if you skip if you skip a year you're like wow this you know this camera is great especially the night shots in this camera compared to my previous phone which was what an 11 pro uh the you know this camera is amazing yeah I, i see the same thing with like relatives that only get one every three or four years and their pictures suddenly get so much better yeah yeah. And, and that's how most people experience it anyways, right? Those of us who buy it every year, are definitely in the minority. Yeah. I mean, this that reminds me, you know, I mean, we hear it every year of like uh, uh, tech nerds in our circle and elsewhere talking about the new iPhone and saying like, oh, you know, should you bother upgrading? Is it a big jump over last year? And it's just, you know, that's not, it's very easy for tech reviewers to, to for us to get up our own butts about this and forget that is not how most of the world relates to phones. Now, maybe it's how most of our audience relates to phones, because if you're listening to techie podcasts or watching techie YouTubes or whatever, it reminds me of like, I, I watch a lot of YouTube channels related to destiny, the video game. And it's just a, a very common theme is moaning and groaning about the game from a perspective that has no bearing on like the millions of people who play the game and don't, play the game for a living it's like i'm tired of this game after playing eight hours a day every single day for my job it's like well (laughs) uh most people don't have those complaints oh i've exhausted all the content and i've gotten all the things and this game is too easy and it's like you do this for a living eight hours a day and you really no one else plays the game that much (laughs) probably not even teens and so uh, you know i'm always conscious of that when talking about tech stuff it's like we do have a tech nerd audience but you do have to adjust your expectations. So anyway, getting a phone every two years, like because I don't care about the latest and greatest, uh, it also helps me, you know, enjoy my new phone that I get. It's always more fabulous than uh, than the average uh, tech nerd experience because I don't upgrade every year. And my computer, I mean, the last I took ten years to upgrade on my computer last time. Boy, that was a big jump. So maybe it won't wait as long this time though. Yeah, one of my best friends growing up is an executive at Activision that makes the Call of Duty games. So he's very involved with that. And he shows me some of the complaints and the things people say to them. And it makes me feel better about Apple complainers because we don't have anything on those guys, man. The the gamers really know how to complain. Yeah. The destiny community is actually pretty good, but it's just, you know, sometimes the like 
you just get lost in your own perspective of, uh, yeah. uh, you know, are, are your complaints representative of anybody other than someone who plays this game for a living? Yeah. And if the answer is, if it involves an Apple keyboard, then the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you see us, you see all of us when we are doing all our tech podcasts that struggle with this, like it, for the keyboard. I mean, we've all been talking about it for years and years before it got fixed. And the struggle is like, is this just us? Does it seem like it's a big deal? And you're like, no, it's not just us. This is bad, right? And like we like the self-doubt and the examination, that's essential to doing a good job at sort of informing the public and talking about technology is you do have to realize that, you know, we are not the average. Most people do not have tech podcasts, right? But also you have to recognize when something is a legit problem and it's not just a tech nerd thing. And that keyboard was bad. Yeah. I say as I type on it every single day. It's guaranteed. Anytime I say something nice about Apple on the show, I'm going to get emails telling me I'm an Apple apologist. And every time I say anything remotely critical, I'm going to get a bunch of email telling me that I'm being too hard on them. It's just, just comes with the territory. After a while, you don't yeah. pay, pay attention. Talk anymore. to your friend at Activision. You'll feel better about that feedback. Too yeah, because it's exactly. the same stuff, but with more <laughs> threats of violence. The best part is when you say something and you get two emails, one saying you're an apologist, one saying you're too mm -hmm. yeah, hard on them for the exact same thing, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> That's the winning comment right there, right? <laughs> I mean, I, that's that's one way to, to think of it. I, I used to get the same thing when I, when I was first writing for Ars Technica because there was the tagline of Ars Technica was the PC enthusiast resource. So when yeah. I first started writing and no one knew who I was, they assumed I was a PC user and I got all these complaints that like, if you had ever used Macintosh, you know, you would know that it's X, Y, and Z, right? Um, and then I get complaints from the, the other direction as well, that I was being too nice to Apple. And like, in some respects, you're like, okay, well, you're getting complaints from both directions, probably need, it's, it's hard to say that one of those right is one, and one of those is wrong. So maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. My goal has always been to try to silence the complaints by being clear enough so that what I get complaints about is my actual opinion, right? Like that's yeah. communication is hard, right? I would prefer someone to say, um, essentially in so many words, you seem to be saying X, Y, and Z. And I think that's wrong. It's like, oh, thank God I was saying X, Y, and Z. All right. You disagree with me, but at least you know what I was saying. But instead someone says, you seem to be saying P, P Q, and R. And it's like, no, I wasn't saying P, Q, and R at all. And I don't feel good about that feedback because it means I failed to communicate. Right. So I'm yeah. always trying to get people to complain about what I said. And if I get those complaints of like, you're an apologist and you're a fanboy, like I didn't, I didn't say either one of those. Like my my position, actual position, is neither one of those extremes. So what we have here is a failure to communicate. Always difficult, uh, especially in yeah. the super time delayed feedback of podcasts where you record it and it gets edited and gets released, and then a week after you did that, people hear it and send you comments. Yeah. Well, you know, we're talking about games a little bit. We this isn't a the gaming power user show, but I got to ask you. I, I know from listening. Um, to your other shows that you're uh, you've already got yourself into a PS5. How do you like it? I love it. Um, I you know I do play Destiny in the same way that uh, the, the only other game that I'm aware of in popular culture that's been like this um, is World of Warcraft. There have been other games similar, but like sort of a lifestyle game where you get yeah. the game and you play it and you just keep playing it for years and years and years. MMOs tend to have that going forward, and Destiny is kind of an MMO. Um, so yeah, I got a PS5 basically to upgrade my destiny experience i play destiny all the time i was playing it on a playstation 4 and then i was playing it on a playstation 4 pro and now i'm playing it on a playstation 5 and each one of those updates has brought with it advancements in fidelity and performance of the game that i play all the time 
And also, yes, all the new fancy games that are available for those platforms. I played them. I played all the, you know, the really good uh, PlayStation 4 titles on my PlayStation 4. And now as good titles come out for the PlayStation 5, I will play those as well. But mainly, uh, in terms of hours, this is a Destiny machine. And this is a superior Destiny machine to the PS4 Pro I was playing on before. So I'm enjoying it. I feel like there's like a PhD paper in the economics of new consoles. Like, how is it that these companies release these consoles and the only people who manage to buy them are the scalpers? Uh, you know, the users really have a hard time getting into these new machines. I mean, I, I bet Apple would have a lot to say about that because uh, the difficulty of producing millions and millions of something that is just at the bleeding edge of what's possible which is kind of what you have to do with a console that's going to be around for eight years. And it's what Apple does with its phones all the time. It's really tricky because if some technology is, you know, technically available, but you can't get it in capacity enough, you just can't use it in a new iPhone. I mean, just look at things like the OLED screen, which took a while to come for the iPhone. Like Apple is in the position where they can only use technologies that they could build at scale. Um, And it seems to me that the console makers have not felt that constraint. Instead, their constraint is, uh, we, I, I don't know what their constraints are. You're right. That would be interesting. Is like they, if technology is on the bleeding edge of what's available, but they won't be able to make enough of it, they do it anyway. <laughs> we just wait, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, it, you know, or I mean, it's not, sometimes it's because they underestimate demand, but a lot of the time it's like, look, this is how much capacity we have to make new PS5s. Like, it's not like Sony's not making, they're making them as fast as they can because every, every second they're not making one is one that they're not selling, but this is apparently how fast they can make them. Now, possibly if they threw a bucket of money on top of it they could pre-build up inventory faster or whatever but they don't want to cut into their already slim margins because unlike apple sony does not make whatever it is 40 percent margins on everything they sell right so sony's yeah. in a, a much more cutthroat business in terms of the things they actually sell and they make it up on the uh you know the the fees for the, the games. games that are available yeah. for the platform over the course of seven years they don't want to give Microsoft 10 months to sell their new platform while they're trying to get caught up. I mean, it's, it's like a whole thing. But. There have been launches that have been staggered by large amounts, and it's been debatable whether the first mover is actually at an advantage or a disadvantage. So it's not quite easy to tell, but it's, it's kind of like uh, maybe the Olympics are like, because console launches don't happen every single year, right? Console launches happen every four or five, seven, eight, whatever. Like the generational boundaries are they're long, so you don't get to, too many chances. So every time you think you've learned something from the previous launch, it's like, yeah, but it's like seven years later. Is all that still true? And so every time there's a console generation turnover, it's like new rules, new ball game, and no one knows quite how it's going to go. Uh, unlike phones that happen every single year and you can sort of iterate a little bit better. So if we've got listeners out there who are either gamers or parents of gamers or grandparents of gamers or whatever, uh, when should people be looking at upgrading to this new generation? Uh, should they be doing it now or? After the first <sighs> month or two, it's usually pretty safe. You'll usually know, like, is there some catastrophic problem? Uh, the Xbox 360's Red Ring of Death aside, usually there aren't systemic hardware problems that lie dormant. Um, so I would say at this point in this generation, it's safe to buy a PS5 as soon as you can find one in a store. Um, Sony's hardware reliability has generally been pretty good. Sony is good at building thing electro- consumer electronics at scale. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. Sony, up-and-comer. Um, they do, <laughs> they do a good job, uh, and I think it's perfectly safe. And in the grand scheme of things, these you know these consoles don't cost that much, uh, and if they do break, they there is some vague limited warranty that you have some chance of getting it fixed. But uh, it's not 
it's not such an investment that people should be scared away of like, oh, is, is it safe to buy a PS5 yet? Is it safe to buy an, an Xbox Series X? I can't even spit out the name of their, their name. Just about Xbox Series X. Uh, yeah, it's totally safe. If you find them in a store and you want them, you should buy one. They're really cool. What's it like to, li- to live with that thing? I know the design is unlike other things we have seen in, in the console era. I mean, if you put it on its end, it's tall and has these big, I don't know, big wings or something coming off the top, but you can also lay it on its side. How does that fit into the rest of your living room? Uh, I don't use it in a living room. Uh, my uh, PlayStation got banished from my living room uh, from playing Destiny on my plasma TV because it was causing burn-in due to the HUD on the on the screen. So that, that's, that was years ago, maybe 2014, I banished my PlayStation. And I brought it into the computer room and I bought a gaming monitor to use with my PlayStation. I've upgraded that monitor over the years. Um, so that's where I play my PlayStation 5. Just one seat over from where I sit in front of my Mac is another little desk uh, that has the gaming monitor on it. It also has the uh, the Apple DDK for the uh, ARM uh, dev kit thing uh, and some other stuff on it. But yeah, uh, I use my PlayStation 5 over there. The, the console, I don't, the design is kind of weird. The, the bottom line is it's really big. Uh, they, like they try to make the design to, they're trying to slim it a little bit, but putting the, the fins and swoops also just actually makes it physically even bigger. So there's no getting around it. It's really, really big. Uh, luckily the desk I'm sitting at to use it is a desk my father made. Uh, he's uh, used to do woodworking in his workshop uh, when I was growing up. Uh, he made this desk to fit the original Macintosh, the Macintosh 128 and the Image Rider 1 printer. So it's a wooden desk with a piece of glass on top of the wooden desk. I think that was inspired by my grandfather who had a piece of glass on his desk as well. And what you could do then is you would print out like cheat sheets for the menu commands and other shortcuts on your Mac and you would slide it on a piece of paper under the glass so you could see that. And also the original Mac, of course, had a mouse with a ball in it. And there was a theory at the time then using a mouse on a glass desk it was a good surface this was i guess before mouse pads because i don't remember yeah. even having a mouse pad until many years after having a mac so anyway it's got a glass top on the desk and then uh if you look under the desk the to the right side of the desk there is a little u-shaped piece of wood that hangs down from below the desk sized to fit an image writer one printer so you'd put the printer in that little area and then underneath the printer we had the box of paper with the little you know little uh holes in the the what do you call the tractor edges or whatever right yeah so we had a box of printer paper and it would feed into the image writer one and you could print from your mac and it would print really slowly on the image writer run that because that thing was exactly sized to fit an image writer run it fits a playstation 5 yeah i'm sure it's sony headquarters (laughs) they had a meeting and say whatever you do don't make it bigger than an image writer (laughs) because because in people's entertainment centers in the living room most entertainment centers will not fit this playstation 5 uh, even horizontally because it is very wide and surprisingly tall. Uh, but if you have a, a cubby size to fit an image writer one, it fits with a little bit of room to spare. So I was happy. I've, I've been annoyed by that giant thing for a long time because it is way too wide and kind of cuts into my knee space and it didn't need to be that big for a PlayStation four or even a PlayStation four pro, but come the PlayStation five, I'm kind of glad I have all that extra space. This episode of the Mac power users is brought to you by text expander from smile. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast to get 20% off and type more with less effort. TextExpander removes the repetition out of work so you can focus on what matters most. 
With Text Expander, you can say goodbye to repetitive text entry, spelling, and message errors, and trying to remember the right thing to say every time. When you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. Better than copy and paste and better than scripts and templates, Text Expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your messages. Now, there's a lot of text expansion tools out there, but Text Expander just takes it a step further. With Text Expander, you can use the same application on any platform, any app, and anywhere you type. Take your time back and increase your productivity with Text Expander. Just recently, I had to prepare some repetitive documents for the law practice that had a bunch of government contract numbers in them, and they were very specific, and I had to get them just right. Well, I made a text expander snippet that used them. In fact, I included the clipboard feature in text expander so I could clip the contract number out of the source document and make sure I got that long string of digits exactly right every time. This is something you just can't do with normal text expansion tools. I love text expander and I use it every day. You should too. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about it. Once again, that's textexpander.com slash podcast, and let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power users to get 20% off. Thank you, Text Expander, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. All right, uh, we mentioned Apple Silicon. Uh, let's talk a little bit about it. You know, what, what do you think about it now that it's out in the wild? I mean, I'm excited for it. Uh, you know, having lived through two of these CPU transitions already, I have, the excitement I feel now is much more like the excitement of PowerPC, uh, less like the Intel one, because Intel was great. And I remember when it transitioned, I remember like um, compiling, uh, like compiling Perl and a bunch of other like stuff that I would custom compile uh, for my Mac, compiling it on my Intel Mac and going, wow, GCC runs so much faster on this thing. Like I'm compiling so fast because I'd done it so many times. I sort of know the cadence of the output of the printing of building these different things. And it was just going fast. And that was exciting. But for the most part, everything else about the computer is like, yeah, Intel is good, and now we don't have to worry about CPUs anymore because it will be fine. But it was there was no wowie zowie. PowerPC, I had stars in my eyes. Like graphing calculator alone was like, here is something that not only is it amazingly fast that you can't believe it, it's like you couldn't even think of doing this on a 68K Mac. Like everything on PowerPC yeah. was so fast. It was like the M1, except in the M1, we're all being wowed by benchmarks and maybe slightly less by the, the you know, moment-to-moment experience. But back in the 68K era, Macs were so slow visually just to draw things on the screen. Like, you'd get used to it, and, you know, just like that's the way when you pull down a pull-down menu and you click on the word file, the menu draws, and it's pretty fast, and it's faster on a 68030 and a 68040. But PowerPC, everything was just instant. Because remember, this is not a compositing window server. They had anything. It was all just blitting pixels onto the screen, and PowerPC just crushed everything that classic Mac OS could do. So I remember being super jazzed that Macs were getting way faster for the PowerPC. And that's what this feels like. Macs are getting way faster. It feels like to me, like of the, all the prior transitions, it seems like they happened at a time when the old Silicon was feeling old, you know? And in this case, I don't feel that as much. It feels to me like more, this is like, oh yeah, the Intel was doing fine. But this stuff is like so much faster. It, it's just like a weird shift. It seems like I don't know. I mean, am I, I explaining I, that? Yeah, I, I, but I feel like for so for the sixty-eight K ones, I felt like sixty-eight K Macs they were fast. Like if you had a, a sixty-eight oh forty Mac, it felt fast. 
you know, and expensive. And like there was, I didn't feel like the 68K was lagging in any way. Now, granted, I wasn't using laptops at that time. So maybe the laptops were terrible because I never had a power book because they were so expensive and I didn't like laptops even then either. But I felt like 68K Macs were fast. Intel, on the other hand, for years now, it's not that Intel has been slow because, hey, what did you have to compare it to? Everybody uses Intel. But year after year after year, it felt like, uh, you know, I've got a, a 2015 iMac and I've got a 2018 iMac and they don't feel that different. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> like it just seemed like year after year, each Intel iteration of Intel processors, like we stopped even caring about what processor is. What do you have? Do you have Ice Lake? Do you have this? How many? You know, it's like when they when they couldn't do a shrink down to 10 nanometers for the longest time, we were stuck on 14 nanometers. The percentage performance increase from one year to the next on Macs had really slowed down. So it had been a long time since any Mac came out that we felt was fast. Even the Mac Pro, even the 2019 Mac Pro, no one was really wowed by the Mac Pro's CPU performance, except maybe in the 28 core model that no one could afford and then only in massively parallel tasks. It was yeah. all about capacity, you know, GPUs, how many GPUs can you stuff in it, that cool FPGA card, and, you know, how much RAM can fit in it. But the CPU, it's like, oh, yeah, and it also has a CPU, and I guess it's okay. And if you get the 28 core one, it's cool. But there hasn't been any sort of really amazing performance jump in Macs in a long time, and that's mostly down to Intel. And so I do feel like the the ARM transition is coming at a time when Macs felt, let's say, stagnant. Like, they weren't slow. They weren't bad. They were fine. But year over year, I, I, you know, it wasn't as exciting when a new Mac would come out in terms of performance. You know, it's interesting. The The flip side of that coin is, hey, you still have a 2015 iMac. It'll probably still meet your needs, right? Especially if it's got an SSD or you can put SSD in it. Still a, a viable machine. And I think a lot of people run Macs a lot longer than they used to, maybe because of the exact thing you're describing, that because we're not making these big jumps in performance, there's just not as big of a need or desire to upgrade as frequently as maybe was true in the past. Yeah, and the thing about uh, the Apple Silicon Macs now is, you know, granted the first ones they put out are sort of the low-end ones, but these days when you say Mac, you might as well say laptop because right. most Macs sold are laptops. And this is an area kind of like the Intel transition where... There's a capability that people didn't have before. And that capability is have a laptop with good performance and a battery that doesn't run out in two minutes, right? Yeah. And that is, I think, part of what's wowing people is like, okay, the you know, the the new MacBook Air is an amazing computer and everything, but like to be as fast as it is and to have that amazing battery life, that's such an important factor with laptops. If if laptops didn't exist and they were only desktops and they put these computers out, they would still be exciting. But the fact that laptop is the dominant, you know, form of a Mac, these chips are so good for laptops. Like the the PowerPC and Intel, the problem was we couldn't get the the quote unquote best PowerPCs into the laptops because they just used too much power. There was never a PowerBook G5, right? <laughs> Famously from that uh, mock-up graphic showing what a monster it would be. And Intel solved that problem, and that was great. But it, it was nothing like this transition where, okay, you've got a laptop, and it's way faster than not only every other laptop, but it's way faster than like every other desktop. And also the battery life is ridiculous. And also it has no fan. And also it doesn't get hot. It is just thing on top of thing on top of thing. So this is for laptops specifically, the biggest jump that the Mac has ever taken in terms of boring old, like performance, battery life, 
you know, user experience as in, you know, fans and heat and weight and size. Uh, and that I think is putting a lot of shine on Apple Silicon remains to be seen if the high end will do the same stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, it might, or they just might roll out a line of computers that are essentially desktops with similar performance to these laptops, so, which would be fine. Like, no one will complain about that, and they'll be nice and quiet and everything, too. But uh, we'll see if they take advantage of the additional cooling and space and everything afforded by a desktop to put out some real monster chips. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of my next question for you, really, is these deltas, right? We went from, if you take the MacBook Air that was sold, you know, six months ago, versus the new MacBook Air, the M1 MacBook Air, you've got this massive jump for a lot of quality of life features. Um, so they've really started far, you know, they, they went a long way down the road with the M1, but when the M1X or whatever they call the the performance iterations of the M1 chip are in the next year, are they going to make a similar jump forward from the M1 or is it gonna be just slightly better? And I, I I really don't know what the answer to that is, but it's an interesting question. I think if you look at the curve of like, a, let's say phone chip, uh, iPhone chip performance, uh, I, I'm assuming the Macs will follow the same curve, mostly because they're based on the same cores and it's the same sort of, uh, you know, architecture under the covers, even though how it's arranged and in what number is different. Uh, the, the jumps from phone chip to phone chip have been diminishing a little bit, but they're still so much bigger than the jumps from, you know, Intel desktop chip, you know, from year to year. So, you know, I think it, it's not going to be as big a jump as it was to go from, like you said, the, the Intel MacBook Air to the M1. We're not going to see a jump like that again for a long time. But it's also not going to be like the jump from, you know, the 2018 MacBook Pro to the 2019 MacBook Pro. Mm -hmm. Like that jump was yeah. nothing, right? So I think we'll continue to see you know, increases similar to how we see phone chip increases only in the phones at this point, I feel like we don't, we don't notice them because a lot of the time the extra CPU capacity is used for things that are invisible to us, like image processing and other stuff. It's like, well, I take a picture and the picture comes out and yeah, it looks better, but I don't see all the billions of calculations that are going on versus on a Mac where we're often doing large batch operations where if things really do get 20% faster from one year to the next, we'll notice it in like, you know, export speed for you know encoding an mp3 or processing 4k video or whatever on desktop computers people do things that require them to sit around and wait for the computer and that's where you actually see that 20 percent jump and appreciate it as opposed to just you know someone on stage telling you that the new iphone is doing 80 hojillion calculations each time you snap a picture yeah i totally agree i, I don't think we're going to get the next macbook air is not going to have the same level of jump but what I was thinking more along the lines of like, what about the iMac or the 16 inch MacBook Pro? Are they going to, you know, how many performance cores versus low power cores are they going to use? Like on the Mac mini, they put four low power cores in it on a computer that's plugged into the wall 24 seven. You know, <laughs> I don't know, you know, what are they going to, what do you think they're going to do with like the, the version of this M1 that goes into more performance based computers? Yeah, we've been talking about that on ATP ever since the uh, the M1 Max were announced. Um, because because of the way they rolled them out, doing low end first and low end only, it's still a mystery. We don't know how they're going to handle this. Technically speaking, they could, as you know, as you noted, in, in computers that are plugged in all the time, they could make just monster chips in there. Like as we know, these cases, you know, these form factors can cool a lot of uh, power. Like you can put a two hundred watt, you know, CPU in there if you want. Like my 
my Mac Pro has a huge amount of cooling capacity in this case. You could build a giant monster CPU, giant monster GPUs, and they will fit in there in the current heat envelope and be as quiet as it is right now, which I think most people find acceptable. Like no, no one's saying that the, the 2019 Mac Pro is super noisy, right? It's a fairly quiet computer. And down the line, right, for the most part, people are happy with the iMacs that use that dissipate the amount of energy that dissipate now. You could build huge, beastly ARM-based chips to fit in that power envelope. Or Apple could decide, you know what, from now on, Macs don't make that kind of unseemly fan noise and don't get hot. And what instead we're going to do is take the sensibility of our laptop line and spread it across all of the Macs. So you'll never hear your iMac fan again. And the new Mac Pro will be smaller and quieter. And they'll still be super fast. And they'll still be faster than the Intel ones. But we're not going to spend all of that heat budget uh, and, you know, budget of uh, chip design to make a chip that is radically different. Like it's, you know, part of the reason why I feel like you have low power efficiency cores in the Mac Mini is because the Mac Mini and the MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air essentially use the same system on a chip with minor variations. That's economically a smart thing to do. It saves you money. You're not going to build a bespoke one-off chip specially tailored to the Mac Mini because the Mac Mini sells nothing compared to the iPhone, right? Um, and repeat that for the entire Mac line. Now, obviously, you can't just use the M1 across the entire line because it's not going to fulfill the needs in terms of, you know, RAM capacity and everything else of something like the Mac Pro. So they have to do something at the high end, but I don't think, you know, you know, they don't have Intel tailoring a chip for every form factor. Like Intel makes so many different chips that they can pick the one that they fits the best in, in the iMac, pick the one best suited to the mini and pick the one best suited to the air. Is Apple going to make so many radically different kinds of chips for each Mac? I don't think they are. Uh, I think they're probably just going to make a class of chips for the low-end ones and maybe a class of chips for the high-end ones. And they will look very similar to each other. And having efficiency cores versus not, well, you know the efficiency cores are used in the iPad and the iPhone, and they're used in the M1 Macs. Chances are good there's going to be efficiency cores in every single Mac just because it's easier to have them than to not have them. And, mm -hmm. you know, it'll make the fan quieter when you're not doing heavy stuff. Not because it's a super awesome idea or they have to worry about the fan being noisy, but just because, you you know, the Mac is small potatoes compared to the iPhone. And so you kind of have to piggyback on what's done there. And it feels like Apple does not have the appetite to disproportionately invest in exotic custom hardware just for the Mac. Obviously, a, a big part of any transition uh, with the Mac is the operating system itself, right? Famously, when they went from PowerPC to Intel, you know, Steve Jobs had that line of like, oh, it's been, you know, living a secret double life, I think is what he said. You know, that they had uh, Intel versions of every major version of Mac OS X ready to go. I think it's uh, questionable how complete those were. But even going back even further, when they went from the um, 68K to PowerPC, you know, the software wasn't ready and they, they were running a lot of the, the Mac OS in emulation and they finally got that sorted out after a little while. But it feels like this time around, Apple really took the lessons it learned from the Intel transition and applied them again. They're even using the same names, right? Rosetta is... Same name <laughs> as last time and universal apps that can run natively on both. Um, but when with the Intel transition, it was a pretty quick deal. I mean, they they shipped Rosetta for a while, but the PowerPC Max only got two major versions of Mac OS after 
the transition started. They got they ran Tiger, of course, which was the the OS that ran on both, and then Leopard unified them, and then and then that was it. Snow Leopard was was Intel only. Do you have any thoughts on how quickly Apple may move on the software front this time? I mean, I think the holdup is going to be the hardware based on the idea that uh, it's going to take a long time for them to make ARM hardware that can replace the Mac Pro. Um, and I think everyone's been assuming that will be the last one to transition. Uh, and so you kind of got to keep the OS running on Intel until you re- until you do the complete the transition. They said it was going to take them two years, right? So maybe... If they replace, if the transition really does take two years, and on the on the two year mark they release the ARM based Mac Pro, you can't really can the Intel version of the operating system on that day, right? Right. So it's going to be at least at least two years, and probably more than that. Maybe not a lot more than that, but I don't think it's going to be as fast as Intel, just because they were able to transition to Intel very quickly because Intel had products suitable for all their whole line already. Like, right. they, you know, that's the whole point of the Intel transition that Intel had pitched them the roadmap that they're going to have these new core processors and here's what they're going to be. When that line was ready, Apple transitioned and they, they were all ready to go. And it seems like Apple is not in, currently in the position of like, yeah, no, we've totally got hard ARM hardware that we can put in every one of our Macs. We're just waiting to dole them out time, you know, slice. No, I think it's taking a long time because they're not ready. And so we have to, you know, that two year transition, I think that means that's how long it's going to take for them not to be selling Intel Macs, except for like schools or whatever, not to be selling Intel Macs anymore. And that's when the clock starts of like, okay, now how long is this OS still going to run? Because it's not going to be like the day after they don't sell Intel Macs, they're going to ditch it from the operating system. So I think it'll be probably three years, at least from, from the starting point, whenever that was. If I had to bet a nickel, I would say that for like the the M, there's the M1 that's in the the MacBook Air, the low-end laptop, the low-end Mac Mini. And then there's a second tier of that that is in the 16-inch and 13-inch MacBook Pros, the iMac, and maybe the updated Mac, like a second tier Mac Mini. And that's just two classes of chip in the M1 series. And that's all we get. And then maybe when they get to Mac Pro, there's a third class. But I... I don't, I like John. I don't think there's going to be a lot of different ones out there. I mean, selfishly, I hope they support Intel for a while because I spent a lot of money on this computer and I do want to yeah. use it for some period of time before <laughs> yep. I replace it. You know, I, I was, I was my 2008 Mac Pro. I forget what was it? It was stuck in El Cap, right? I think was the latest I could run. I could have like firmware flashed it up to run like uh, Sierra or whatever, but I didn't. So I know what it's like to be left behind by Mac OS, like to be on El Cap and then Sierra comes out and then High Sierra comes out and I'm just running El Cap just. Because it's the latest OS, my computer will run without hacks, and I don't relish doing that again. Mm-hmm. Do you um now if you had your choice, you know, do they go with the big and bad with the full cooling system or something more moderate that allows them to run quieter and longer? You know, what do you think is the right answer as they upgrade the M1 chip? I think the right answer is to use every ounce of the cooling on the high end. And the right answer for like the middle of the road is to more or less do what the iMac Pro did, where everyone was always impressed uh, about how quiet the iMac Pro could be and still be so powerful. I think that, you know, it's like for, for each spot in the lineup, you have to say, what is the tolerance for noise and heat here? And obviously the super high end, it's like, bring it. Like, I don't want it to be noisy, but the current amount of noise my Mac Pro makes, I'm fine with that. And that, that is a huge amount of cooling capacity. For the iMac, I feel like the like the regular 5K non-pro iMac, it's a little noisy. Yeah. I would hope that they would 
choose to turn it down and say, well, okay, we're not going to, we either need more cooling capacity there or we need to put lower power chips in. And I think that's perfectly appropriate for an all-in-one computer of that type. And then the laptops, I love them to just be dead silent. And and not just silent because like it annoys you, but also they don't get hot in your lap. Like that is a performance characteristic of a laptop. So I think it's different trade-offs along the line. But I think if I, you know, if I, if I could get my wish granted, I would say, bring on the weird, exotic, super high-end, custom-made, it doesn't make any sense to, to be spending this much money to develop this chip on the Mac Pro. And then, you know, scale down from there for the other ones. Yeah. Now, what about the hardware itself? I mean, I feel like now that we've got Apple Silicon, we should be able to bring over some of the technologies from the mobile devices to the Mac. Um, obviously, with this first iteration, we didn't get any of that. Um, do you have any... Uh, any hopes and dreams for future Mac hardware that that has some of the iPhone and iPad bells and whistles? Yeah, I mean, it's in some respects, it's disappointing that they didn't do this on the first round. Um, but like the the M ones are so amazing that we're all just no one really cares. <laughs> They're just yeah. you know that we're just so dazzled by what they do have. It's people aren't uh, getting too mad about the fact they don't have Face ID. But I really do hope, and I think I think Apple will take advantage of this that they do bring over all the things that we've been missing. Like for the longest time, it's like, why don't Macs have face ID? Why don't they have cellular? And it's like, oh, well, maybe they're waiting for the arm transition, this, that, the other thing. Um, they have to now fulfill that, that, that uh, implicit promise, which is look, these essentially same chip system on the chips do all this stuff in phones and in iPads. They should do it in Macs too. Like you brought touch ID and that's great, but face ID needs to be there. Cellular needs to be there. And that's before even considering the like, now what kind of new exotic Mac can you build that you could never build before? Like a weird convertible touchscreen Mac, a big drafting table touchscreen iMac, or a new slim fanless form factor that you couldn't do before because the CPUs were too hot to do. Like that's, you know, the third tier. So I think the first tier is like, oh, they're just like the Macs, you know, but they're better. Second tier is they're just like the Mac, you know, but better. And also every feature that you ever wanted from the iOS line it's also brought down to the Mac because why shouldn't it be? And then finally, totally new exotic Macs that you could never build with an Intel processor. And I really hope we get to that third phase because I'll, again, it's about investment. Like does Apple care enough to invest in what it's going to take to put cellular and face ID in a Mac? I really hope so. But then the next yeah. question is, is not obvious. I mean, do they care enough to invest in a weird new Mac that no one could ever build with an Intel chip? Maybe that's just not, Maybe the, the Mac product management doesn't have a stomach for that, right? Maybe they're just happy to let Microsoft try exotic new PC form factors. And if one of them catches on, maybe they'll join up. But otherwise, they're not going to push the envelope there. That'll be disappointing, but it will make sense sort of both economically and also sort of uh, attitude-wise. Like the Mac is the more stable platform. It's less the the purview of uh, exotic experimentation because it's not really the heart of what Apple does anymore, despite what the... Uh, old fogies like Phil Schiller might say. I mean, I have to admit I'm with you. I, I like the titanium MacBook versus the 13 inch MacBook pro M one. They don't look all that different. You know, I, I would like to see them get, you know, more experimental with hardware going forward. But you know, I guess that's human nature. As soon as you give me something great, I just want something more. Yeah, I mean, laptops are, are necessarily constrained by the boring realities of it that it has to be portable. But even within that, you can do interesting stuff, as we've seen with the iPad and all its weird attachable keyboards, plus all the Microsoft Surface devices and the, the convertible tablets that fold on themselves. Like, there's 
there's obvious synergies with like the M1's ability to run iOS apps and hopefully eventually run iPad apps and getting a touchscreen on a Mac like that. That's right out there for the taking if they're ever interested in it. But even yeah. within the realm of desktops, there's all sorts of interesting things that you can do if you're still interested in innovating in desktop computer hardware. Again, the Microsoft Surface Studio, a, a thing that looks like an iMac, but also can lay down to be a drafting table, but can also use a tablet, but can also use this giant puck thing that sits on the screen. That's innovative. That's interesting. And Apple hasn't done anything like that since, I don't know, since the uh, the iMac G4 or the Cube, right? They're just I I would love that kind of experimentation enabled by the extremely low power, extremely fast chips maybe maybe we'll see that in the form of the vr goggles or whatever and how they interact with some new mac i don't know but that's i feel like it's out in the future but i'm looking i'm looking forward to something happening there i'll i'll be disappointed if what happens is we just continue to have macs just like they are now except they have face id and cellular for the next 10 years right from your lips to tim's ears i don't think he listens this episode of mac power users is brought to you by squarespace Make your next move to Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea, project, or business. Complete with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store, or host a portfolio, or write a blog. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that and so much more. And there's nothing to install, no server patches to worry about, no middle-of-the-night upgrades are needed because Squarespace has all of that stuff covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help, but you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of their award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I love building on Squarespace. I've built a bunch of sites on it for various groups uh, over the years, and last year I built one for a local nonprofit here in Memphis, and they wanted to add a blog uh, later on after the site was done, and it was really easy to go in there and add that add it to the navigation, do a little bit of design work, and now they're blogging. Squarespace plans start just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com MPU, and the code MPU will get you 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for the support of the show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, John, we are both owners of, uh, of the 2019 Mac Pro. It's my first Mac Pro. It's my first Tower Mac that's been my daily driver. I know you've you've had many over the years. Uh, and I, I wanted to check in and see how it's treating you. We're now what? a year in or so, I think, since they first started shipping. And how's the year been? So it took a little while for me to get everything settled down. I mean, you experienced this too. Like when I got it, the 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 better the step up graphics card wasn't available. So I had to get it with the stock graphics card and then wait around for the step up graphics card to be available. And then I got that from Apple and you know, I had to sort out my storage situation. Eventually I got everything settled down. At this point, the only part of my setup that bothers me is unfortunately a part that could be solved with more money. I, in fact, a part that I think you did solve with more money, but I have thus far, I have not been able to stomach it. And that, and that part is uh, internal storage, right? I love yeah. big tower cases with internal storage. I like the ability to stick large amounts of cheap storage in there and not have them visible on my desk. 
And my sort of typical hygiene for backup of my main computer is I want a time machine drive and I want a, a bootable clone drive and then I want my main drive and I want that all to be inside the computer. And then I also have external network backups and all those sorts of other stuff, right? But I want all that stuff inside the computer. And when I get a new computer, I like to step up the boot drive size. And that means all my backups have to get bigger as well. So mm-hmm. this computer I got with a four terabyte boot drive, which means I need a four terabyte clone drive and I need at least a four terabyte time machine drive all inside the computer. This computer can hold tons of storage. No problem there. And one of the advantages of having a big tower computer like this is I can buy quote unquote cheap spinning hard drives, right? I can get a really big spinning hard drive for not a lot of money and stick it inside this case. And that's exactly what I did. And for the most part, everything is great, except for this one thing that I continue to battle with, which is when I'm not using those hard drives, uh, when time machine backup is not running or when I'm not doing one of my scheduled super duper clones, I want the hard drives to be unmounted, easy enough to do. I have lots of cool utilities to unmount them and mount them, and I have scripts that I wrote myself to do it. And also spun down. Because when they're not spun down, the merely spinning hard drive, not actually doing any reads or writes, but just the spinning of the hard drive is the loudest thing inside my computer. (laughs) Right? And so now the only thing I find unsatisfactory about the setup is every once in a while, my computer decides that Hey, I know none of these hard drives are mounted, but I'm just going to keep spinning this one. <laughs> and yeah, disk util eject is supposed to do it. Disk util eject dev disk whatever s whatever. Like sometimes the various scripts I've written to try to use disk util eject to eject all the right devices and volumes and subdisks in the right order to get it to stop spinning work. Sometimes they don't. Right? No. What is it? Uh, PM set disk sleep one to say spin down after one minute of idle time. Like all these things work like 95% of the time, but then 5% of the time, usually right before I'm going to podcast, I'm like, why isn't that disk spinning down? Because, <laughs> because I always, I don't shut down my computer. I just put it to sleep. Mm-hmm. Right. And it wakes up on schedule to do backups and everything. In fact, my internal time machine backup is only backed up once per night. Uh, it, it, when I'm asleep, my computer wakes up, mounts my internal time machine drive, does a time machine backup and goes back to sleep. During the day, it's continuously backing up to my Synology through Time Machine. But the internal one is just a once-nightly one. Same thing with the clone. The clone is once-weekly. So I never have to see those drives. So when I'm just using my computer in daily use, I want to walk up to it, hit the space bar, wake my computer up. And yeah, the hard drives will spin up. But they'll spin up and then, you know, 60 seconds later, they'll spin back down. Because they're not mounted. Right? They don't mount when I wake up a computer. No, they're never mounted. And sometimes they just won't spin down. So that's the that's the one remaining annoyance. Everything else I've got settled. I can I can reboot from from an external uh, uh, SSD into Windows and do all my Windows games. And getting that to work was a super pain in the beginning, but that's all sorted out now. I don't have any problems with the computer. It's not crashing. The performance is great. I love the graphics. I love my monitor. You know, my imp- I'm happy with my input devices, except the part where the little rubber is wearing out a little bit on my Microsoft mouse, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that. But I like my keyboard. I'm happy with this up. My one enemy is the disks that sometimes won't spin down. And the solution to this with money is, we'll just get rid of the stupid spinning disks and put SSDs in there. You've got so much room in there. I could put tons of SSDs. But if you try to buy, let's say, 16 terabytes of SSD space, that is a lot of money. Yikes. And I already spent a lot of money on this computer. Yeah. And I don't know, what do you think? I, who do you think I am? Stephen Hackett? I, I hey, come on. <laughs> <laughs> the SSDs are pre-existing. 
no, I mean, I went through the same thing and started out all SSD and it just wasn't enough. And then went to, I found a five gigabyte, two and a half inch drive, which is the weird, like too thick to put in a laptop. And it worked for a little while, then it, then it didn't. And I've got two spinning, uh, eight, I've got an eight terabyte or sorry, a four terabyte and a 12 terabyte drive spinning. And yeah, they, I have the same problem you do where they, they don't stay, uh, quiet when they're supposed to. I definitely have similar frustrations as you do, and it hasn't gotten any better. I was kind of hopeful. <laughs> it was a foolish wish, probably. I thought, maybe Big Sur will do a better job at spinning down hard drives. And then I thought, no one working on Big Sur <laughs> knows anything about spinning hard drives anymore. That's just the way that Mac OS is going to be forever. But it, it is sort of the promise of this machine, right? That you can open it and you can upgrade it over time. And as your needs change, the machine can adapt to you. And and boy, do I love opening mine and fiddling in it. Yeah, and just to give you the, the tips that I've been using, like, so I'm using Mountain, even though technically it's not supported in this OS, but I, whatever it doesn't work in it, this part works fine to me. So I use Mountain to prevent mounting of these drives. So when my computer starts up, they don't mount. When it wakes from sleep, they don't mount. And that works. Like these drives never mount when they're not supposed to, like I never see them, right? Because I, I don't see them on my desktop, right? I didn't, you know, I, I have mounted drives on my desktop, right? So I'd recommend Mountain, first of all, to keep your drives, your spinning drives from mounting. Second thing I would say is, you know, making a script that runs diskutil eject on essentially every single volume by like, you know, doing diskutil list or, you know, diskutil APFS list or something and parsing the output and then just ejecting every single disk, that script goes a long way so that if you do use your computer and you notice that the thing isn't spinning down just make an alias in your terminal or something and just run that or i don't know do it in apple script or however you want to do it and just run disk util eject in every single thing it won't obviously eject your boot disk because it can't because you're booted from it so you don't have to worry about doing any harm and as long as you just make it avoid any disks you actually do want to be mounted that most of the time solves the problem the final thing that i would suggest is Every once in a while, run PM set minus A disk sleep one to remind the power management system that you want your disks to sleep after one minute. Sometimes I think it forgets. I don't know. I can't tell. There's no like. There's nothing consistent about this. Everyone, it's like you know, every time is different. Like I'll run the PM set command and then I'll wait sixty seconds and it will spin down and I'll convince myself it's because I ran the the PM set command that it spun down this time, right? But then like it will work perfectly for like a week and a half and I'll stop thinking about it. And then all of a sudden it won't. I'm like, what's different? What's happening? It's it's one of those problems where it's like low level, you know, a low level annoyance that goes away for long enough to forget that it exists. But then it comes back and it's all the more annoying. And it also is just it reminds me of exactly how quiet this computer is. Because, like I said, just a spinning hard drive, no heads tick-tocking back and forth, no reads, no writes, just the spinning of the platters is so no- so much noisier than the rest of this computer all the time that I can just hear it spinning. And I'm like, why are you still spinning? And it becomes my, I have to stop what I'm doing and it becomes my mission to make it spin down. It is amazing how quiet it is. I mean, that was something that Apple touted when they announced it. In fact, I rewatched that in preparation for the show and you know, they're like, oh, it's as quiet as an iMac Pro when it's when it's under your desk. I mean, I, and I've had mine crunching, you know, multiple streams of 4K video. And and while, you know, when I first get it, you want to stress test it, right? And like everything I could throw at it, don't hear the fans. But, uh, you know, with the hard drive, especially if they're, they're towards the top of the case, right? And the case is full of holes. That sound just makes its way out. And 
it is uh it is annoying i thought you had a pci card with a bunch of ssds in it to replace when you're spinning things uh i do have that that is for like archive storage uh and it gets uh it gets cloned uh i think every week um, oh, so you have so you have spinning disks and a yeah. whole PCI card with. I got a lot of storage. I, I thought you had. Yeah. I thought you had replaced your spinning disks with. No, them. no, they were... they're still in there. Really for the time machine drive because I wanted one quite a bit larger than my boot drive, but um, I didn't want an external. I was like the whole point of this is to put it inside. Yeah. But, um. You know, SSDs will get there. I mean, they are. It is expensive and it is difficult to find anything bigger than four terabytes that's reliable, but. I think clearly they've they've made good ground in the last even the last three or four years it feels like so I, I I'm still hopeful that in the future we can go bigger on SSD and it not completely break the bank but it may it may not be for this Mac Pro it may be for the Apple Silicon one yeah we'll see like on my 2008 Mac Pro by the time I got rid of that computer I had replaced so much stuff on the inside of it I had gone through so many different hard drives and eventually SSDs and like that's that's the beauty of a computer with a, with a case this expansive and so much stuff that you can swap out is that if I was to try to keep this for 10 years and if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the whole arm transition thing I would be able to swap things out I can get rid of this graphics card and put in a bigger one I mean I already did that once I can add more RAM I can add way more storage I can get rid of the spinning disks eventually and let's say seven years when suddenly it's really cheap to buy a four terabyte ssd get rid of those spinning disks like and so by the time i would get rid of this if i kept it for 10 years it would be dead silent there'd be no spinning disks and it would have huge capacity maybe i would have even swapped the cpu which is a thing you can do so that's obviously i'm not going to reap all those benefits given the arm transition but even just for the short time i've had it i've already been inside this thing plenty swapping things in and out and i expect to do maybe one or two more swaps before the uh they come out with an ARM Mac Pro. Of course, it depends on what that ARM Mac Pro costs. I may be saving money for a few more years before I get it, but yeah. we'll yeah. see. Uh, just one question. Um, with the new Mac Pro, it it felt to me like, you know, the upgrade path is is there, but it's very much, you know, minded by Apple. I mean, you've got to get hardware that really they approve for putting in this computer. And I know, like, you had to buy extra hardware just to mount drives inside of it. And... When you think historically, like a tower computer, you didn't have to jump through that many hoops. How intrusive is it? I mean, is it is it is it difficult to upgrade, or does it feel like they're making it a little harder than it should be? I mean, that's never really been true of this computer or the previous ones. You've always kind of been in the same situation where if you want, you can buy the Apple parts to do the cool stuff that are going to be like twice as expensive. But yeah. you can also take PC hardware and shove it in here. People have taken just PC video cards and put them inside this case. You buy PC hard drives, PC RAM, like PC CPUs, right? You don't have to buy anything from Apple to swap into this thing. But specifically on this computer, Apple has really upped their game on the Apple accessories. They're not just, oh, Apple branded and you're sure the drivers will work, right? And they're more expensive yeah. as they were in the, the old cheese grater. Now they're they're like perfectly matched to the inside. So, you know, I bought this this video card which is way more than the PC equivalent would be, partly because it looks so beautiful in there with the MPX module with no extra power cables and, you know, just, it fit, and you know, there's no fans on it. There's literally no fans on the GPU. It's just all passive heat sink. And that's what I'm paying all that money for. Uh, the bent piece of metal that holds my hard drive, Apple didn't even make one of those, but the ones that are made by third parties also look very Apple-ish and, and beautifully matched. The main thing preventing me personally from reaping any of the benefits of, buying cheap PC hardware and shoving it in here is not anything that Apple did. Uh, 
it's you know it's my my aesthetic taste that i want it to match but mostly i have to drive the uh the pro display xdr and nothing in the pc, PC space drives this right so i could buy a pc video card and attach it to this monitor and i'd run it in non-native resolution like like pc gaming cards do not have thunderbolt 3 video output on them they just don't yeah they're they're about refresh rate yeah and not just refresh rate they can't just pump out that number of pixels like they have yeah. display port on the back of them uh you know or well, i don't know what other connections they have that but they do not they, they can't drive the pro display xdr like it, it requires display stream compression it doesn't you can't use two wires to hook it up like you could with some of the old apple monitors or you have to buy some weird adapter or whatever so i was essentially stuck buying an apple gpu if i wanted to drive this monitor at native resolution which of course i did because what's the point of getting this big monitor um, but that's my own stupid fault for buying the stupid monitor. If I just had a regular PC monitor, I could buy a regular PC video card, which would be noisier, but also way cheaper, and it would have way better gaming performance than the one I did buy for less money. The fans, the fans on the cheap card would drown out the noise of your hard drives. I mean, but you can, you know, it's the world <laughs> of PCs. You can buy a passive cooler for your PC GPU, right? You know, you can, I could buy a water cooler and put it in there. There's a lot of room in that case for you to do pretty much whatever you want. What I'm saying is that there's nothing Apple is doing that's stopping me from having the flexibility I want, because as of right now, it's not going to be true of the on world, but as of right now, this is essentially an Intel PC. And even though Apple's got the weird MPX connectors or whatever, it's filled with PCI slots, RAM slots, and an Intel CPU socket and SATA ports and USB and Apple's drivers in macOS are fairly flexible. You can do a lot with this. It's not that different from the 2008 Mac Pro. The only difference is that if you want to get the fancy Apple stuff and hook up the fancy Apple monitor, now you pay through the nose and are more limited. But if you don't want to live in that world, you can treat it like a big, expensive PC, and it will work and do that. It sounds like overall, though, you're pretty happy with it. Yeah, I have what I want, This, which is the super expensive, beautifully matched parts that are inside that don't have any fans in them. It's just those spinning hard drives, and like so that's a, that's a problem that money and time will eventually solve for me. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM and start monitoring your website performance and availability today and get instant alerts when an outage occurs or a site transaction fails. With offer code MPU, you get 30% off. Now, while you've been listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if customers didn't click that buy now button or access your content? You might stumble across the problem by luck, but that's no good. You need a system. You need something to tell you everything is running smoothly on your site. And more importantly, when it's not, you need Pingdom. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month. That's more than 400,000 outages every day. Pingdom helps you keep your sites and your sites you love online. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company. You need alerts about any critical website issues. Pingdom will let you customize how you're alerted depending on the severity of the outage. Plus, they'll track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting the user experience. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom. And Pingdom has a no-fuss approach to getting started. All they need is the URL you want to monitor, and they'll take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. You don't want to find out your site is down by someone talking to you on Twitter. You should be on top of that stuff, and you can with Pingdom. 
So go to paintum.com slash RelayFM, and then when you sign up, use the code MPU at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So, John, I know your uh, day job and a lot of your uh, career has been, all of your career has been in uh, development, but you also do some Mac development uh, for yourself. You've got two apps. Uh, one is called Front and Center. The other is called Switch Glass. Uh, it was really interesting to hear you talk about them during their development cycle uh, on ATP, uh, but I wonder if you could explain what those apps do, and then I'd love to hear sort of the the lay of the land with Mac development today. Uh, Apple's tools have been around for quite some time. I'm not a developer, neither is David. A lot of our listeners aren't, but uh, you know, Apple does provide Xcode and other tools to make this uh, development possible. How are those tools feeling today? We're at here at the end of the Intel era. So, I mean, I have been a software developer for my entire career, but I've, I've been a web developer. I do server-side web programming. Well, they call, they call it full stack. I've done the full stack, yes. But most of my uh, career has been set on the server-side rather than on the client-side. Um, and server-side development is very different from client development. But, of course, I've been a Mac user all that time as well, and I always wanted to make a Mac app. You know, ever since I learned to program anything, my first, my, well, my first program was on, like, the VIC-20 and Commodore 64 and Commodore PET in BASIC, but... After that, when I got my first Mac, oh, okay, so I was using Microsoft Basic on <laughs> on the Mac. After Basic, though, like I like I bounced off programming for a long time. I wrote bad text adventures in Basic, but I didn't understand what the heck I was doing. It never clicked with me, and uh, programming only really clicked with me when I went to college. Believe it or not, like I didn't. I I majored in computer engineering because I wanted to be in the engineering school, but I also liked computers. So this was like the compromise major because computer science was in liberal arts. So I went for computer engineering, but I honestly didn't know what I would do because computer engineering encompasses hardware and CPU design and all that stuff. And uh, and it's an engineering major, so you got to take tons of physics and math and chemistry. But also there's a software part of it. And by the end of freshman year, I knew I wanted to do software. Like it clicked with me. I took my first real programming class. I learned C. And I was like, I, and what I, all I was doing with my free time was writing software for the Unix stuff, right? So I was like, all right, now I'm a programmer. And I've been a Mac user forever. I want to write a Mac app. And writing Mac apps, let me tell you, was a lot harder <laughs> back in those days. <laughs> I remember the first Mac program I wrote. What was it with? Um, I don't remember the IDE. It might have been Think C. But to do something like put a window up on the screen, right? But with nothing in it, just <laughs> the window on classic Mac OS. Uh, I recall having to write the I, I i made a window come up on the screen i was super excited and the window comes up and it had like a title like hello or something and then i went to grab the window and move it and it didn't move like you'd click on it and hold down the mouse button and move and the window wouldn't move because i hadn't implemented b- responding to mouse down and mouse movement to move a window oh gosh like you didn't get that for free wow. i mean you probably got it for, you probably got it for free in like power plant or whatever, but in the Mac toolbox, if you put a window on the screen and didn't handle mouse down in the window or whatever, you just couldn't move the window. <laughs> so I looked all this up and this is, you know, nascent days of the internet and, and, you know, actually, and, and got, you know, put in all the code to move the window around. And after I'd done that and I had a window that went on the screen and you could move and like close and resize and do all that stuff. It's like, if this is what it takes to put a window up, screw this. I'm, I'm never going to make a Mac program because it's so hard. Like, because, you know, I knew what a good Mac program was like, and it involved more than an empty window that you could move. 
Um, so for the longest time, I I was just much more in, and it was also the internet really helped with that. I was super into my career and still am. Like you know, web programming, the internet, all that stuff. It's amazing. You can put a server on the web and do things, and it's accessible and everybody for everybody who has a web browser. And like that just has consumed me. And of course, I've been using a Mac and using Mac applications and loving them, but never actually made one. Uh, and, you know, it took a long time for me to finally get over the hump. Part of the time I was like, well, if I ever had an idea for a program, then maybe I would make, if I ever had a really good idea for an app. And, you know, of course, when, when the iPhone came, it's like, now is the time to do it. It's the gold rush. Everyone's making apps and getting rich. I should make an app. I'm a programmer. I could figure it out. But I never had any ideas for an app. And I didn't know how to do any of that programming because I never did a GUI program. My GUI programming is the web. I could make you a GUI on the web and I can make the server part of that and I can make the database part of that and I can run it all for you. But I didn't know anything about client-side programming. The, the thing that finally kicked me over the edge was a bunch of my beloved Mac programs that I had been using since classic Mac OS started to fall by the wayside and not be replaced with anything. And the final nail in the coffin was uh, James Thompson's drag thing, which I had been using since classic and drag thing had slowly replaced all of my little utilities because it had subsumed their functionality of like particular behaviors I wanted or features that it had. And when drag thing went away after, you know, only being developed for 26 years because he's a quitter. No, <laughs> like, <laughs> that, that app was around for so long. It's ridiculous. Anyway, when drag thing finally went away, I realized some of the features that it had, I didn't want to say goodbye to. And so I, you know, I, I was doing my typical, like just annoying tech person and going around to all my friends for us. I was begging James not to stop developing them. And, Oh, what if you did this? Or what if you just broke out that functionality into a separate app? Or, you know, like, like, trying to see if I could cajole him to continuing develop in some limited form. And then I went to my other Mac developer friends. And I'm like, hey, you're a Mac developer. I want this specific feature. Wouldn't it be cool if, you know, you just make a little app that just did this one little thing for me, right? Uh, and one of my friends took me up on it. My friend Lee, who I worked with uh, years ago when, uh, back when we worked uh, at, at Palm uh, making their electronic bookstore. Uh, he's a Mac programmer. And he made me a tiny little Mac program that did this one specific thing that I wanted. And the one specific thing that I did is hard to explain. And I'm going to try now, and it's probably not going to make too much sense to you. Uh, but anyway, in classic Mac OS, uh, if you were in one application, this is in, in the days when the multitasking existed in classic Mac OS. If you were in one application, like, say, uh, Microsoft Word, and you had a bunch of Word documents open and you're working in your Word documents, and you saw a finder window like in the background poking out somewhere and you clicked on like the title bar of that finder window what would happen next is every single window in the finder would come to the front right so all the finder windows they're all layered relative to each other but when you clicked on a single one of those finder windows poking out from behind your word documents all the finder windows would come in front of all the word windows right and then same thing, if you saw a Word window poking out from behind your Finder window and you clicked on a single Word window, all of the windows in Word would come and be in front of all of the Finder windows. That's just the way classic macOS worked forever. That's what I'm used to. Drag thing was the final utility that I used in, in uh, macOS 10 uh, slash modern macOS that had that functionality. There's been a bunch of little tiny utility apps that included that and they all eventually went away and then James Thompson incorporated it into drag thing which is an app that does something else entirely. And then when drag thing went away, I lost that functionality. And all I wanted was just a little tiny app that changed the behavior of macOS to do that. 
instead of the way macOS has done it since the dawn of macOS 10, which is if you're working in Word and have a bunch of Word documents in front of you and you see a finder window poking out and you click on that finder window, just that finder window comes to the front. And all the other finder windows stay exactly where they were, wherever they're buried. Just the one you clicked on came to the front. So my friend Lee made me this tiny little program that does this. He came up with the name Front and Center. And he said, here you go. Here's this little program I wrote. And, you know, like, it does what you want. What do you think? And given that little starting point, that little kernel of a program, you know, I'd been familiar with Xcode. I'd been going to WWDC for years. I'm familiar with Objective-C and I know a little bit of Swift. Like I've, I've, I know all the, the sort of surroundings, but I could never quite get over the hump to sort of just get a completed program. And Lee did that. Lee made this very simple program and I, and shared the source code with me. And I was off to the races at that point. I'm like, okay, well, I want to add a new menu item and I want to add a new preference. And I want to change this behavior. I want to do that. I want to do that. And I started enhancing it. And then eventually I said, well, I don't really like Objective-C. So I started over, started a new project in Swift and just rewrote the whole thing in Swift from top to bottom. Uh, and that's what I put up on the App Store as front and center, <laughs> technically an application by both Lee and me. Uh, but it, I sort of took ownership of it after it went up on the App Store. And you start adding the features that I wanted to add and, you know, just what you do in programming, right? Where you just you just keep adding features and tweaking and fixing bugs and coming up with ideas and all the typical programmery type stuff. So that's front and center. It's a super weird program. All it does is change the window layering behavior in a way that's very difficult to explain. It really only lives in your menu bar and has a cute little icon. Uh, it works in two different modes where you can have it so that uh, it works the classic way, which I described from classic macOS, or the modern way, which is the way it works by default, and shift-click on a window reverses whatever the current behavior is. And you can exclude a bunch of applications from things and it has a bunch of listings or whatever. It's the strangest little program you could possibly imagine, but for old-school Mac users like me who want this functionality, uh, it's actually, you know, it was surprisingly popular. Like, I'm not going to say it was popular because it wasn't, but I, I, I thought 10 people <laughs> would download it and it was more than 10, so I was excited by that. Um, so that was my first one. Uh, and then with the taste of being able to, you know, make an actual real app and actually sell it for real money, albeit a small amount of it, I wanted to replace one more piece of functionality that went away with drag thing, which is, uh, the application switcher palette thingy. So drag thing, uh, lets you make palettes all over your screen that you could fill with anything with, you know, folder icons and applications and things that did stuff or whatever, one of the kinds of palettes you can make in drag thing was a process palette that would just list all your open applications. Uh, and, and you have to think that, you know, drag thing predates Mac OS 10. So drag thing predates the dock. In fact, James Thompson actually worked on the dock when he worked for Apple. So yeah. it's all a big connection there. Yeah. Um, and of course, Mac OS 10, but it's so hard to talk about Mac OS anymore when they drop the 10. You know what I mean? Mac OS. Yeah. <laughs> it has the dock, right? And all your applications, all your running applications are in the dock anyway. So why do you need another thing that lists your running applications? Well, kind of like the front and center thing, it's what I'm used to. Uh, ever since, hmm, Stephen helped me here, macOS 8.5? When did the uh, application switcher palette come to macOS? Mm, it's in that era for sure. Yeah, sometime around macOS late 7s, early 8s, Apple added a feature where you could 
tear off the application menu in the upper right hand corner or whatever and have a little little tiny palette with a tiny icon for each one of your running apps and you could put that little palette wherever you wanted and if you clicked on the icon of one of those apps it would switch to it it was kind of like the dock before the dock and i used that for years and years since it was part of the os i put it in the upper right corner of my screen so jammed in the upper right corner under the menu bar where there's a, a bunch of tiny little icons each of which was one of my running applications and I'm just so used to looking up there and chucking my cursor over there to switch between applications. Now there's the dock, you know, that has that stuff in it. But here's the thing about the dock is, you know, I spent many years complaining about the dock on my Mac with 10 reviews and a lot of my complaints still stand. The dock doesn't just have running applications in it. It's got applications that aren't running. It's got folders. It's got the trash can. That's all stuff that I'm not interested in when it comes time to click on something to switch applications. Of course, you've got Command-Tab. You can switch apps with Command-Tab, too. And you can click on Windows to switch apps. Like, there's tons of ways to switch apps, but I'm used to having that palette up there. And furthermore, I'm used to having that little application switcher palette be a certain size and shape and different from the dock. Um, so, and especially on, on desktop computers, I run my dock on the bottom, and I run it fairly big. And I have a certain hygiene in it. I have a certain number of folders that I arrange. I have my own habits habits that I built up in the Mac OS X era. But I still want a little application switcher in the upper right. And so I decided, I, and I also wanted to try out SwiftUI, which I'd read a lot about. So I decided I'm going to make a new app. I'm going to use SwiftUI. And it's going to be a little application switcher palette. And that's what I did. Uh, the app is called Switch Class. And all it does is show your running applications on a little tiny palette in the corner of your screen. Uh, and in typical fashion, I couldn't just leave well enough alone. And, you know, I made it so you can put it in all sorts of different positions. You can dynamically resize it and you can, uh, you can, uh, it has multi-monitor support. So every monitor could have its own palette in its own position with its own applications hidden or shown on it, or you can hide the palette entirely. And it's got way too many features for a program as simple as it is. But yeah, that's my second app. I put it up on the app store and, uh, you know, a very small number of people who had the exact habits that I had, perhaps built up from classic Mac OS or from using DragThing, also uh, bought it and appreciated it. And I was heartened to see that there were some other weirdos in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I found doing Switch Glass, which is my first application from scratch by myself, not just rewriting something that my friend wrote for me, uh, to be a, a lot easier experience my second app was easier than the first right because even though switch class sure. is much more much more complicated and, and bigger um i do have to admit that like a decade or two of, of watch obsessively watching wwc sessions and being a programmer as a career made the on-ramp to this very small but for the longest time i could just never get over that conceptual hump of like okay well i know how to code and i know how to do stuff or whatever but I don't know how the APIs fit together. I don't know, like, just how to sort of bang out, okay, window, menu, button, click, brings up this window, does this thing. How does it all connect together? Like, I never got over that hump until I actually had to make the application myself. And Yeah, there's, like, a million little details that you know are there, but you're not sure. Like, even just, like, putting it on the App Store, I'm sure, was a learning experience. Well, that's, that's a side of the whole thing that i didn't care to learn but was forced to <laughs> you know, having to you know make a, an llc and deal with all the tax stuff and get a duns number and deal with all the bureaucracy of the app store and deal with app review like i think my very first submission was rejected like just <laughs> you know, for for stupid reasons and de to deal with all the 
arbitrary rejection. You would think with these two apps that I explained are like so simple and trivial that I would never get rejected for like for, you know, for reasons other than stupid mistakes. But no, they find things to complain about. To give to give just one example, one of my versions of Switch Glass, not like the first one that did this, but like the fifth version, right, was rejected because someone found that if you made the application switcher really, really big on a really small screen, which I let you do because I don't have very big limits. If you made, if you didn't have a lot of apps launched and made it really big because you can make Switch Glass way bigger than the dock and your screen was small and then you brought up the preferences window because Switch Glass floats in front of everything, it could obscure the preferences window's close box so you couldn't click on it because the palette would be in front of it. <laughs> and they rejected my app for that. Wow. And I'm like, okay, that's not great. But if someone uses my app in that really weird way, which honestly, why would you make your application switcher fill like more than half your screen? But okay, if someone does that and I can't get to the close box of my preference window, I feel like that's on them or that's on me. Like then I have a bad app, but don't reject it from the store. What's next? You don't like my color scheme? Like that feels like like an artistic complaint. So what I did was I literally added code that now if you take switch glass and open the preferences window and make the switch glass palette big, the preferences window flees from it. Like it will run away from the palette as it gets bigger to make sure that the close box is always accessible. <laughs> and I had to add that feature to get past app review. So yeah, there's been a lot of adventures with app review, even for two essentially so trivial, like the simplest possible app you can imagine. They have very little UI. They do very little. They don't use many APIs at all. And yet still for these limited APIs, at various points, I had to, like, they're sandboxed, so I got to deal with sandboxing crap. And at one point, I actually had to ask for location services access to show the right dynamic desktop background pattern in my preferences window. I eventually bailed on that just because it's too much of a hassle to explain to the user why I'm prompting them for location information. And I just came up with a different approach. But yeah, the these because the apps are so trivial, the overhead portion of app development, essentially dealing with Apple, dealing with the business stuff, far dwarfs the computer code part of it, which is, you know, it's what's going to happen if you make very simple applications. It, don't be surprised if the bureaucracy overwhelms it. Obviously, if the applications were more complicated, then the balance would shift. But I have dealt with a surprising amount of uh, bureaucracy and BS for these two little apps. I think those app reviewers have a lot of very black lines drawn around what they can and can't do. I had a book that won Best in iBookstore Award. So I had a, they gave me a special badge, and it's a great book. And then a couple of years later, they decided they wanted to call it the bookstore. This is, you know, not the, they weren't going to call it the iBookstore anymore. And when I submitted an update to the book and I had a, a copy of the badge in there that I had won Best in iBookstore, mm -hmm. they rejected the book because it had the <laughs> yeah. word iBookstore in it. Oh. But it was their artwork that I was using that wow. I had won. And I had to like talk to some people. They eventually said, okay, we'll make an exception. I'm like, well, guys, you gave me this badge. I mean, are you going to give me a new badge? I mean, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do here. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, again, uh, having been in this world for so long has given me a little bit of a heads up. For example, I knew going in that if you're working on a new version of your app uh, that works with the new operating system, that you can't say that in the release notes, even if it's the truth, even if like, hey, I'm putting out a new build and it's about a week before Big Sur is released. And what are the what are the yeah. new features in this? Well, this is the version that works right with Big Sur. But you can't say that because if you mention Big Sur in your release notes, you will get rejected. Luckily, I knew things like that and avoided them. I didn't know I'd be rejected by a prefs window that could be obscured by the palette. 
but all the other arbitrary rules that you wouldn't know if you weren't steeped in this world, I already knew. And it's still annoying. Even when you know them, it's still annoying to work around them because then I'm just asking my friends, what do you usually write? What, what helps you not get rejected? Again, this is, this is a single line of text that's going to appear on the app store that essentially is explaining this is the version that works with Big Sur. But since I can't say that, I have to say something that won't let me get rejected that tries to convey that information. It's so dumb. <laughs> a surprising amount of my time is spent figuring that stuff out. I have a friend that runs a fairly large Apple ecosystem-based software company. And when they have major updates, they literally send a couple of their engineers to Cupertino and they get a hotel room across the street from wherever the review is happening. And they tell them, look, if you want to meet and have coffee, we're happy. We're across the street. And, Must uh, be nice. I think, it's, I think it's a pretty smart move, actually. I wish I could do that. You, like My experience is more like yours, where it's just hard to even get a hold of a human to say, like, look, you gave me this award. Like, what are you even talking about? Like, you're just so desperate to get someone to communicate with who will acknowledge your yeah. humanity and say, I'm not crazy, right? Like, just yeah. you're, what's going on here? Why are you rejecting me? What is this about? One, one of my other rejections was, I mean, this was a legit rejection, but like just the things they'll reject and won't reject. I had released like several versions of this program and then they rejected it once because I had a print menu item, but there was nothing to print. And the print menu item came as part of like the template in Xcode, right? I just had never removed it, but I didn't put it there. And they said, no, you yeah. can't have a print menu item. You don't have anything to print. I'm like, you're right, technically. And if you select print, it would bring up a dialogue that says, sorry, there's nothing to print. Again, a dialogue I didn't write. It just comes out of the box or whatever. But they didn't like the fact that I had a print menu item because that's against the human interface guidelines, which <laughs> I feel like, yeah, you're right. It is. That, mean, that means my app is bad. But let my app be bad. Like, it's not bad in a destructive way. I'm not scamming people. I just, you know, I'm a beginner and I left the print menu item and don't reject my app. <sighs> it's tough. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by DevonThink, the flagship product from Devon Technologies. DevonThink is the most professional document and information management application for the Mac. It's the one place for storing all of your documents, snippets, or bookmarks and then working with them. The integrated AI assists you with filing and searching, while the extensive search language with advanced Boolean operators makes it easy to find things. DevonThink features this really flexible sync system. It supports a bunch of different cloud services or lets you synchronize over your local network with everything securely encrypted. The choice is up to you. It has smart rules and flexible reminders that let you automate all parts of your workflow and delegate boring, repeating tasks. Let DevonThink automatically organize your data with rules you define. DevonThink's AppleScript dictionary is one of the largest on the platform. There is simply no part of DevonThink that can't be automated. You can extend the functionality with your own commands by adding them to its built-in scripts menu. Even templates can have scripts inside of them, and you can set up new documents with data from placeholders or inserted by your own Apple script. And of course, there's so much more. From an iOS companion app that makes it easy to take your Dev and Think databases with you, to automatic email archiving, scanning, even an embedded web server for sharing your data securely with your team. If you have a bunch of files that you need to manage, things you need to search for, connections you need to make, check out DevonThink. It's made a world of difference in my work. You can get 10% off DevonThink 3 or upgrade to it right now. Just go to devontechnologies.com MPU. That's devontechnologies.com MPU for 10% off. 
Our thanks to Devon Technologies for supporting the Mac Power users. John, I think a lot of our audience will know you uh, or maybe came across you first with your Ars Technica OS X reviews. And you've been out of that game for a long time, but I know you spend a lot of time still thinking about new versions of Mac OS. And as we record this, Big Sur has been out for, I don't know, three or four months. Uh, I'd love to know if you're uh, running it on that Mac Pro and what you think of it. I am running it. I held off on it for a little while, and uh, this has been my habit lately. I I let other computers in the house be the guinea pigs because I don't want to disturb my essentially my podcasting setup, right? So my wife got Big Sur first, and then I put it on the kids' computers, and it just seemed like it was safe enough for me to bring to mine. And there was a couple of apps that I you know wanted to be updated for. I wanted to run the new version of Xcode. I wanted to run the new version. I wanted to run my apps. Uh, my apps have some conditional code for Big Sur to match the cosmetics and everything. I wanted to be running those, so I'm sort of experiencing my apps the way they're supposed to be. So yeah, eventually, I updated to Big Sur. I think I updated around around 11.1, maybe. I don't remember the timing, but I waited a little while, but I did update to it. Do you think that's a good rule of thumb for most users? I mean, it really like it's such a hard question because people want to hear like some kind of blanket answer, or they want to hear like it depends, or they want to hear like a rule of thumb, but the mac os releases are like the weather like it really really depends on the particular release and how is an average consumer expected to know what the weather is for the point zero release of mac os nobody knows that unless you listen to tech podcasts or read you know tech nerd websites right it's unreasonable to expect consumers to have to have this knowledge it should be more like it is on ios for the most part with a few exceptions like ios 13 and ios 7 i think for the most part iOS updates happen on people's phones, especially these days, more or less unbeknownst to them and unbidden because Apple pushes them super hard and it's hard not to hit confirm on the dialogue without thinking or whatever. But like iOS updates just come and essentially we all assume that for the most part, an iOS update won't destroy your world. Again, a few exceptions. There's some infamous releases of iOS that were really bad in their point versions, but the rule of thumb, I think, if I was recommending to a regular person, hey, what should I do about uh, uh, updates on iOS for my phone? I'd be like, just update it whenever it says. It'll probably be fine. Like, yes, there are exceptions, and, and tech nerds will say, don't give that advice. That's terrible. You should always wait X amount of time. But I feel like iOS has been reliable enough over the long term that that is a reasonable blanket advice. But on the Mac, I don't think that's true. On the Mac, a lot of times, because the Mac is so... There's so much variability on the Mac. You can have tons of different peripherals, different configurations, different software that's been around for a long time that does different things with, you know, kernel extensions and other kinds of drivers. And just it's a more exotic world than the phone or the iPad. And so I think the wrong advice is as soon as the new version of macOS comes out, just update on day zero. That's never been the correct advice. The real question is how long you should should you wait? Sometimes day zero is fine, but usually not. Uh, sometimes day 128 is fine, but sometimes not. So I don't have, I don't have good advice in general. You just kind of, I got to know how the OS is going. I feel like I waited a fairly conservative amount of time for Big Sur. Uh, I updated my wife to Big Sur after like, I think like the, the first minor patch update or something. And it was mostly fine. Um, but there have been bad ones. Like I still, I still have scars from like Leopard, right? Ten five zero was not kind to my computing world uh, compared to ten six, which was much nicer. But even ten six zero also had a lot of weird things about it. You know, just 
it's tough. Um, and if there's one thing I want out of Mac OS, uh, and maybe it's because I'm becoming an old man and just getting uh, grumbly is like, you know, I, I love features. I love cool changes. I like, you know, redes- things that are being redesigned or whatever. But what I really want is essentially to just burn down those bugs. Like there's a backlog of bugs of weird crap that doesn't work in Mac OS. And nothing excites me more than the idea that a new version of Mac OS will just stamp out obscure bugs as opposed to the, our current situation where it feels like every 0.0 version of Mac OS brings with it a whole new crop of its own bugs on top of the quote unquote low priority bugs that never got fixed in the past one. And that cycle I feel like is unsustainable. So I really hope future versions of Mac OS really double down on the idea that for the most part, they should be, you know, have fewer bugs than the previous one. And I, I think because Catalina was just so buggy through all of its life, I think Big Sur point zero arguably was did not increase the number of bugs from Catalina, like the latest Catalina. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a few, I know mail was a little janky and there's a few things here and there, but I think Big Sur is a, a data point in the right direction of being more stable. Let's put it this way. Big Sur point zero was more stable than Catalina point zero for sure. So now Mac OS has not always been an annual major update, you know, to the software. That's kind of more recent that they've been doing that. I don't know how long they've been doing that now, like six or seven years. Every year we get a new version of Mac OS. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, is that a good idea? Would it make more sense to stretch it out longer? That's another thing we've debated of many years in, uh, on ATP. I mean, coming from, you know, a career in software, like the the correct answer is that any reasonable release interval is equivalent you could do it every year every six months like obviously you can't do it every 24 hours right but any reasonable release cadence is possible if you correctly structure your organization to make the necessary trade-offs to hit those deadlines right so if you're going to do a yearly release that's fine what you have to do is then structure your work such that you have enough stuff that you can get done in a reliable manner in time for a yearly release and Apple's problem has not been that they're on a yearly release or half yearly or two yearly. Their problem is they're stuffing five pounds of junk into a three pound sack or whatever that expression is. They're just trying to do too much in too little time. So it's not the fact that they're doing yearly release. It's the fact that they're putting in features that take more than a year to get stable. <laughs> right? So you can, you know, whatever cadence you pick, you can decide to scale down. So you're sure you can fit within that. Now, as you scale down smaller and smaller, if you did like try to do monthly releases, for example, right, or weekly releases, eventually the overhead of doing a release at all starts to kind of like my trivial apps starts to dwarf the features, right? So yeah. in a yearly release, you imagine it's like 75% features, 25% overhead and like, you know, QA or whatever, right? But if you try to do weekly releases, you get to do like 1% feature and 99% like just dealing with the mechanics of doing a release, right? Validating on all the hardware, so on and so forth. Like the overhead is more or less constant to sort of test all the things and make sure everything's great or whatever. So you do want to size your releases so that there is a balance between overhead associated with any kind of release and the features. And I think a year is well within that those boundaries, right? That's plenty of time to get a substantial amount of features and to have time to test them. Apple's problem has just been that they haven't been correctly sizing 
the work and the features. Like they've always just been like, oh, I, you know, we promised this on stage or we, we have this vision that this is all going to fit together in this way. So we've just got to get it done. And all we got to do is work hard and let's just work hard and try not to make mistakes. And that's not a strategy for quality software, right? You really have to be brutal in, in cutting your features to actually hit a deadline like that. Uh, the old way before like the, the sort of very rote yearly cadence was more or less that macOS would come out kind of, sort of, when it's ready. Now, sometimes macOS would be dragged along by hardware. It's like, well, I don't care the macOS isn't ready. We're going to launch this new hardware, and so you better get your OS ready for it, and it'll be all janky, right? Sometimes it would be like, well, we've just been waiting too long, so you just got to ship what you have, right? But still, when it wasn't on a yearly schedule, you got the impression, especially, you know, with the thing I just complained about before, I think it was Leopard, um, the, the OS that they explicitly said, hey, guess what? Mac OS is delayed because we're doing this phone stuff. So just deal with it. Was yeah. that Leopard, yeah. Stephen? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, it was Leopard. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why I asked you. You're so young. You, you only remember the stuff because you read it in books. Uh, <laughs> I, I was a, uh, no, I was on the front lines for Leopard. Yeah, uh, in fact, I was what? at the, uh, middle, the beer bash for it. You were in middle school? Were you in middle school then? <laughs> I was a Mac genius for Leopard. Leopard release. You You're an Apple employee. Come on, Part of the mothership. Of the man. He's the yeah, man. You're, you're working for the man. Anyway, yeah, um, it felt like there was a little bit of more leeway with with some exceptions to say Mac OS just isn't ready. Like, I know we plan on shipping it, whatever, but it's going to be a little later than we thought. And they would do that. And that's why it wasn't on a strictly yearly cadence. I remember graphing out the time between releases and it varied a lot. And I felt like it varied because sometimes they just it didn't get done in time. And so it's going to be a few months late. In general modern software organizations frown on that type of schedule of like, well, we'll just release it when it's done because that's not disciplined, right? That's kind of like, well, why can't you tell me when it's going to be done? Like your whole job as a manager is to plan a release and size it correctly and cut things when they need to be cut to hit a deadline, right? You can code to a deadline and that's the discipline, which is only include what you know you can fit in that period of time. And if something's not going to make it, kick it out early and let things settle down as opposed to saying, we're going to make it, we're going to make it. Oh, in the last second, we got to tear out this feature and it breaks the whole, like that's bad management, right? But the old yeah. sort of artsy fartsy style is, eh, it'll be released when it's done, which is kind of how game development sometimes works and kind of how Mac OS used to work. And I'm not saying that's a superior strategy, but sometimes I feel like, like for the initial version of Catalina, if you know you didn't make it, like you tried, you tried to hit a year boundary and it just doesn't look like the quality is up, just don't release it. Just wait an extra three months. Like, I know it's going to feel bad and you're going to feel bad as an organization and be like, we failed as managers. And yeah, you kind of have, because if you, if you were trying to code for a date and you didn't make it, but don't subject us to your mistakes, right? Just, <laughs> I don't know. So I, I would suggest, you know, to summing up, I don't think yearly release is the problem. I think it is the process of software development for macOS that's the problem. If it's perfectly possible to do a yearly release and have way better stability than they have now, if they don't want to do that and they want to go to two years, I don't think that's going to solve their problem because if they can't hit a year, what makes them think they're going to hit two years? All they're going to do is add more stuff in and be in the same exact situation, possibly worse, right? But maybe yeah. they just maybe they just need a little extra flexibility or grace period, or maybe it's just an expectation game where if they just vary the release schedule, so it's like 18 months, 16 months, 12 months, 10 months, and keep us on our toes, no one expects it to be yearly, that will give them the flexibility to sort of hide their screw-ups and say, oh, we thought we were going to be ready, but it's actually going to take two extra months. Take the two months Apple. Just give it to us when it's ready. Yeah. And historically, when they started doing the yearly release for the first two or three years, it was because they were getting features to 
make parity with the IO, the mobile. You know, there, there was things that worked with mobile that also worked with Mac, and they wanted things to be able to talk to each other. And it was kind of important that those releases came out at the same time. But that really hasn't been an issue for a while now. When they when they were doing that, I know you said the word parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y, but they were also yeah. kind of making a parody P-A-R-O-D-Y of <laughs> Mac OS, like in the like line or of iOS, like in the yes. line release, where yeah. they were aping the look and feel and paradigms of iOS on the Mac for that, like you were talking yeah. about, like for like synergy of like, oh, we're one big family stepping forward together. And look how similar yeah. we are to each other. And it was like, Mac, stop playing iOS dress up. That's not you. Right. And so there were yeah. some there were some bad years there. And that didn't last very long. And and that was it was bad for the release cadence because why do these two things need to be in lockstep? Sometimes they do, like you said, for the when there's a feature that ties together where you do need the Mac half of it, that iPhone train was leaving the station. And if the Mac wasn't ready, they're just gonna ship what they have. But other times it was like this family resemblance and this whole sort of misguided notion of unity that was only skin deep that was really not helping them in their release schedule. All right, so the flip side of that, um, what are some of the new features you'd like to see them add to the Mac at this point? Any low-hanging fruit in your mind? I mean, we already talked about Face ID and cellular. I mean, I, I know those are hardware features, but there's a software component to that. I, I continue to be dissatisfied with the Finder in ways that no one cares about but me. Uh, if, if I had my druthers, I would make some changes to the Finder that would make me like it a lot better. Uh, but in general, most people don't care about that. Another one that's in the uh, camp of uh, features that only I care about is uh, window management. Uh, I know there are tons of third-party programs for doing window management. I know macOS itself, a couple versions ago, added a bunch of features for window snapping and window management. All of those features are not what I want. Like It's what most people want. That's why there's so many utilities exist. Oh, make this window a third of the screen. Make it a half of the screen. Snap it to the top. Snap it to the bottom. Grid snap here. Like That's what all these features do. The fact that it's built into macOS and the fact that there are 20 third-party programs to do, it, to do it show that it is obviously a popular thing that people want to do, but it's not what I want to do with Windows. So I think a lot about making a third Mac program to do, to do what I want with Windows, uh, but I would much prefer that Apple implemented itself. So I would, I would love for Apple to have more sophisticated uh, features for arranging and sizing Windows on your screen. Right, beyond what they have now and not in the paradigm of tiling into thirds or halves or whatever and like they currently do. Like that's not what I want. I want a more freeform, uh, sophisticated system for window management. We're gonna talk about that in more power users because I, I feel like even though there's twenty alternative apps, I think I don't know anybody that thinks Apple's way is the best way. Yeah, that their functional first of all, Apple's functionality is super hidden. You wouldn't discover it by accident, probably you'd have to read about that it's even there and Second is it, the functionality is very, very limited. Uh, like, and this, I don't, I don't tile my windows on the screen like that. Like, that's just not what I do at all. So I just ignore that functionality entirely. In fact, the only pl- place it comes up is it annoys me when a, the window starts snapping to like the screen edges, and I have to hold down the option key to override it. You know, like I wish I could just disable that because it's not doing what I want. It's just like Apple, just let me do it the old-fashioned manual way if you're not gonna help me out. Uh, but yeah, those those are obscure features that probably only I care about. Beyond that, a lot of the the stuff that I want out of macOS is like better basic performance and fewer bugs for just boring stuff, right? Uh, now, when we talk about macOS, we're, I guess we're talking about the operating system, but I lump things like Photos into there and the Mail app, which I don't use, but like sort of Apple's bundled programs, 
there's a lot of places that Apple's bundle programs could be better. Higher performance, fewer bugs. Uh, and because macOS releases include all that new stuff, new version of iCloud Photo Library, new version of Photos, new version of Apple Mail, new version of Messages, like that's all wrapped up in the, the release that we call macOS. All of those Apple built-in apps, I wish all of them got more attention. I'm glad that a bunch of them got attention to Big Sur. I'm glad that we got the, uh, you know, iOS inherited messages app. So we have feature parity there. Finally, again, we have parity without, without it being a parody for the most part. Uh, <laughs> like I like that, but there's so much more that could be done. I still feel like Apple photos has not regained the level of power and Mac like behavior that the best versions of iPhoto had. And it's a shame after all these years. So most of my areas of sort of feature dissatisfaction with Windows setting aside um, feature dissatisfaction with macOS setting aside obscure stuff like the Finder and window management is with the bundled programs. I wish, I don't know how many developers are on those teams, but whatever it is, double it, triple it. Like I want, I want the Mac programs to continue to advance like they did back in the good old days when iLife was the new hotness. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I, I, I love the Mac and I want to see Apple give it so much more love when you were on this show two or three years ago at one point i asked you a question of like do you think that the the macintosh operating system is as mature as it will get and you gave me a a great answer talking about how there's so much more room for it to grow and i still think about that every time i look at the mac there there is so much more they could do with this platform and now with this this renaissance of the m1 mac and these great Macs, we want those features. We want that stability even more, I think, because you see so much potential for the platform. We haven't even mentioned stuff like, uh, you know, touch interface to Macs and unification of that paradigm and be able to run iOS apps and integration with VR. Like there's so much farther it can go as the most capable platform. It has the most power, literally and figuratively. Uh, you know, it has the most flexibility in terms of form factor. It should really be, I'm not going to say we're going back to the digital hub strategy, but it should really be sort of the mothership. The Mac should be able to do everything that every other Apple thing can do, plus more on top of it at the cost of being a personal computer, right? And that's what I hope for. I I, I hope that there's nothing, there shouldn't be anything that an iPad can do that a Mac can't, right? And vice versa is not true. So that's, that's the future I want. Well, John, um, we talked a little bit about some of your shows, but let's uh, let's put them on the record here. You also make the excellent ATP podcast, and that is at ATP.fm. You got it. So if you like the Mac Power Users, you'd love ATP. Marco and John and Casey get deep into the Apple ecosystem every week. Uh, you've got that show you do with Merlin, Reconcilable Differences, which makes me laugh every time I listen to it. What a great pairing. John Syracuse and Merlin Mann. Uh, what am I missing? Uh, robot or Not with Jason Snell, where we started out deciding if things are a robot or if they're not and have moved on to other matters. It's a very short podcast with two to ten minute episodes. That's a cute one. And you can find Front and Center and Switch Glass both in the Mac App Store. I'm a big fan of Front and Center, by the way. Bought it day one and I, I still use it. Love it. Uh, switch class i haven't got on board with that one yet i just you know i just don't want more stuff on my my desktop but to each his own right mm-hmm. um yeah that's that's exactly what little programs like this are for just whatever little things that you want on your computer and i totally understand if you don't want the exact same things that i want on mine it must feel good though when you look at that in your screen you're like yeah i made that i must feel kind of good right 
it feels good that it's just there. Like, I don't care that I made it. I would be perfectly happy if James Thompson made it for me, but I just need it to be there. So it's so it's so nice to be able to fill my own need with exactly what I want. Like, if there's something I don't like about it, I change it. So it's it's nice to not have to, you know, try to cajole another developer into making their program exactly how I want it. I just make my own program the way I want it. Yeah, well, you did a good job on it. And um, thanks to our sponsors, Smile, Squarespace, Pingdom, and Devon Technologies. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU, and we'll see you next week.